Hi, and welcome to The Fit, the fashion, innovation, and technology podcast hosted by eFitter, personalizing the shopping experience for you. My name's Judith. And I'm Elizabeth. And on The Fit, we delve into the complex world of fashion and tech with insights from industry players, old and new, and much, much more. Join us every other Monday for a new episode you do not want to miss. To join the tribe, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at eFitter app, and join the conversation using the hashtag TheFitsPod. Today we're here with Swate and Davey, co-founders of Remember Who Made Them, a six-part podcast series, digital campaign and fundraiser that aims to help energise a new solidarity economy in fashion. It is run by a group of concerned feminists with networks in philanthropy, climate activism, the arts and sustainable fashion. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank, thank you for you. having us. So firstly, we love what you are doing to amplify the voices of fashion workers in the industry. And we've covered this plenty of time in our podcast this year, because rightly so, it's become this huge centerpiece of conversation in the fashion industry due to the effects of the pandemic and the after effects to the economy. But firstly, before we get into the conversation, it'll be great to get a little bit of background into the both of you individually and how Remember Who Made Them came up to be. Thank you. So, I mean, I don't mind going first, Davey. So I'm Swadi and I'm just really excited to be on the show with you guys, um, Judith and Elizabeth. It's so lovely to speak to you and to see you as well. Um, so uh, I have a, a background in social justice. So came into, um, I used to be a, a youth activist and a student activist. And then when I finished university, actually um, got into um, an organization called Student Volunteering England and campaigned for like recognition of youth rights and we got student volunteering week in the UK recognized um, as like a week-long kind of national recognition week for students and youth um, who were doing activism and sort of started on my journey that way uh, and ended up sort of working for youth organizations uh, and then in sexual and reproductive health and rights so I worked for Mary Stopes International and International Planned Parenthood which gets sexual and reproductive health to people and then sort of ended up in philanthropy which is uh, getting money to groups around the world um, just because I think when you look like me and work in a place like the UK, you rarely get a chance to make decisions about who's receiving money and not. And so I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to do that uh, and worked in feminist philanthropy. So supporting social justice movements led by adolescent girls around the world. Uh, and that's how I met Davy actually and Ruby, uh, who's one of both of the other co-founders of the campaign. And it was actually through my work with um, With and For Girls, which is a donor collaborative that I also met Venetia at an International Women's Day event. So that was the sort of connection to everybody. But I'll pause for Davy to introduce herself and then we can tell you about how Remember Who Made Them came together. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, so glad to be here as well um, talking about this because I think it's something that I realize has been in my life for a very long time. I'm half Cambodian, half American, and I grew up in Cambodia. And when I was becoming a teenager and, you know, started to have my own opinions about what I should wear, it like paralleled the same time that there was an acceleration of the global fashion brands coming into Cambodia and starting to um, set up shop with different factories there. And, you know, thousands of other young women my age or around my age were entering the fashion industry um, as garment workers. So it, it was almost impossible for me not to think about it or see it and just 
think about where my clothes came from. And I was buying clothes in a local market that was selling, you know, um, products that, you know, didn't make the cut. I mean, I, I could barely see why they wouldn't have been shipped off, uh, but we were buying them at a, a, a lower price, which made me happy as a young person. But as I would then travel to, you know, the global north, like the US and see what they actually cost, there was like, hmm, something's not right. <laughs> why is it so much more expensive over here? Where's the money going? Um, so, and I grew up with parents who come from, um, are working in humanitarian work or are activists themselves. So I, I am very lucky. I feel that I have those values in me to start questioning, you know, why should, why is it me versus them that, you know, anybody else, anybody going to work deserves to be paid a fair amount to be able to buy food, housing, medicine. So I think, yeah, it started from a very long time ago. And I found um, this year, I think at, at different moments of crisis, I still have them in my mind. And this year, when the pandemic hit, I had just recently become friends with Swati and we bonded over um, different conversations around fashion. Swati is an investor in an ethical fashion um, brand, 1111. She can tell you more about it. But I think, you know, I texted her and I was just like, this is awful for, you know, thousands of garment workers who are suddenly out of work um, or being forced to work in unsafe conditions. And I don't know what, what happened after that saute. I was just like a text and I was like, this just, we have to do something. Yeah. So Davey sent me this text being like, this is horrendous. Look how many billions of dollars worth of orders are being canceled around the world. And there's just no justice for all these garment workers that are, you know, many of them live on $21 a week. You know, it's, it's, a, and you know, that is not enough to live on in their countries at all. They're like literally on the poverty breadline. And so as soon as you stop their job, it's within two weeks, those people are like, completely in poverty like they are not able to feed themselves or their families so it's like it's horrendous what's able to happen and happened overnight earlier this year and so Davy was sort of sending me these articles and I was sending her ones back and we were just like this is just horrible and I had connected with Venetia the year before and we actually recorded a podcast for her podcast series Talking Taste Buds called Fashion is a Feminist Issue where we, um, you know, coming at it from um, a feminist analysis of how the fashion industry is structured, you know, 80% of garment workers are women uh, and they're women in the global south. So these are black and brown bodies um, who are making clothes and they're being extracted and exploited for gains and money to be you know accumulated in the global north so in countries like Europe or North America and so I think you know talking to uh, Venetia about we need to do something like what can we do to support these garment workers at this time and I was like I'm talking to my friend Davey and we're both thinking about this like what can we do and then we also looped in Ruby as well um, and you know what it was also like, what can we not do? And one of those yeah. things was like, we cannot make another t-shirt. <laughs> and that's yeah. where it also really began because, you know, whenever, you know, people want to do something good, often it's like, well, let's put a slogan on a t-shirt. And we're like, that doesn't work here. And it doesn't often work 
in <laughs> other situations if you don't put thought into where the t-shirt comes. So that's where actually one of the first slogans of our campaign is like solidarity is not a t-shirt. And it led to, um, I think, sorry to interrupt you, Swati, you can keep going <laughs> with uh, how Venetia came in. <laughs> No, no, I, that was exactly it. We were just like, then we started seeing so many t-shirts appearing and there were t-shirts coming out that were like for the NHS as well from ASOS. And you're just like, we live in a in a country where we our taxes pay for the NHS. Like our NHS workers should not have to go to a, a food bank to feed themselves during a pandemic. Like this is, and you know, no one questions defense budgets. No one questions like any other budgets in the same way. And yet our frontline care staff and frontline workers are not being paid. And I think it was just this rage of just, People are trying to show solidarity. And actually, as a consumer, you're just like, I do care about the NHS workers and I care about these workers in Bangladesh and Cambodia and Mexico and other and Liberia and other countries around the world. But the only thing that you're told as what solidarity looks like is to is to show your solidarity with paying into something that actually you can buy your way into solidarity through a t-shirt or through a donation. And actually, you know, that, that was something that we wanted to unpack together. And, you know, when we started to talk together as the four of us, we were just like, what can we do that's additive? Cause we are huge fans of, you know, labor behind the label remake fashion revolution, clean clothes campaign you know and and garment worker and labor organizations like solidarity center business and human rights so we were just a bit like there are already these incredible players in the space we don't want to take attention away from them um, and we don't want to replicate what they're doing but we feel like there is still a story and a narrative to be told that isn't reaching some people um, and it needs to be told in a different way. And so we sort of, I guess, seeded or sparked or birthed this idea of remember who made them. Cause we, the, other, the, the one thing that we really realized was that um, across all of the industries, we just weren't giving us a, a narrative or a storytelling of garment workers themselves they were not a part of the conversation in ethical fashion you know there are ethical fashion influencers and heads of company and and heads of ethical fashion brands um and people like ourselves who are like interested and care about the issue but you rarely hear like direct from the workers about what they're doing and i think because davy ruby and i come from sort of working with social justice movements around the world we're just really privileged and lucky because we've got to see firsthand how people at grassroots around the world show up every day to build power and like they are really the most powerful people that are doing something to change the industry like as much as we want to do over here our power is incomparable to what they're doing and the way that they organize and they collectivized and what we wanted to do was use our platforms and our networks in philanthropy, in social justice, and then, you know, Venetia's work with, you know, having a social media presence and that network and knowledge and understanding to basically 
take those incredible stories and be able to amplify them and elevate them into spaces where people had not heard them before and to give a new analysis to the com or not a new but to amplify existing analysis of what was already happening in the fashion industry and so we were just we actually started off with like should we just have a hashtag should we just like do you know should we create like an electronic t-shirt that like a filter t-shirt that people could wear instead so like it was a really evolved idea um you know we actually thought we want to amplify workers voices and you know we're all big fans of arts as well and working with artists and so we really wanted to have artists involved to like tell those stories in a new fresh like engaging way just because people are much more online and it feels that that's an interface that feels like you can educate through but also just appreciate something that's beautiful as well and like beautiful but powerful and important and so we really wanted to have like an art uh, and an arts medium to what we were doing and i think it was we actually started off with that and it was through that that we were just like actually the art is brilliant to kind of bring initial attention and to give like one side of the narrative but actually the best way to hear from these voices and the best way for us to share our analysis is to have a deeper conversation which is why the idea of the podcast came out i'm so glad that you raised the point of the t-shirts um both of you so um for me one of the strangest things to happen this year was the shift of responsibility from government to the consumer. Um, the fact that people were having to now walk laps around their garden to raise money for the NHS, which is not a charity, which is paid for by taxes, which should have the funds to be able to provide adequate care. But as we've unfortunately seen this year has really suffered. And then the flip side of that is producing these t-shirts that say, you know, pay workers or um, what was the, there was a feminist t-shirt um, like a year or two ago that everyone was wearing that we later discovered was being made under dire conditions in, I think, in Bangladesh. And I think it's unfortunate because that does come from a gulf in knowledge between the consumer and the brand. And it's intentional, you know, consumers are intentionally kept in the dark so that they're, they don't feel empowered to make decisions to lobby these brands to say, actually, I don't agree with your manufacturer practices, which is why the fact that you are you've decided okay you know what there are all of these other initiatives we can also add our voice to the narrative um there is never too much there is never a crowded environment where we're really trying to get the message across to consumers which leads me on to my follow-on question so you've mentioned all of these um numerous initiatives and for me the one that drew the closest parallel to what you do is fashion revolution because it does give that voice directly to the garment workers the question is what made you go out of your way to create another one and i know that you work very closely with these initiatives but um what was it that you were trying to achieve that you felt that currently um isn't getting across in the other initiatives um i mean that is a question we really asked ourselves because we really didn't want to compete or take away from others and i think one thing is that you know we haven't set um, we know that this might just be for a moment. Sometimes we thought about it like that, like we're just trying to create like a pulse moment to shine a light on all the great work that's going on. But again, I think what Swati was saying, something that we felt was a still, we wanted to add into um, a little bit more was like drawing people in mostly, you know, from the Instagram community, 
who are like, there's a lot of people who care about ethical fashion and are starting to question it. But I think it's exactly as you said, they're being pushed a narrative that it's up to them as individuals to shop better rather than to organize and come together as a collective um, and to really be in solidarity with the workers um, and to really push back against huge, huge systems. Like we cannot do it alone. So we really, it was about like drawing in more people and bringing them on this journey of like, okay, you care, but what's next? Um, and I think we're still trying to figure that out and still trying to shine a light of like what it's like to be a labor organizer. And that's why like in episode four or five, we start getting into like, sorry, my baby in the background. Uh, um, we start getting into um, like it's actions that make movements and labor organizing being incredibly dangerous um, around the world. Um, we just heard in a bonus episode about hired thugs that will target union organizers or, you know, the factory owners will fire you if you just form a union. So I think that was another piece that we felt we wanted to lift up more of like what it means to create a movement. And, and, you know, again, there's many of people who are doing that, but I think we were just trying to add again with the incredible um, talents of our illustrators that joined us too, that I think, illustration and art just draws in more people and we definitely joined in the whole new like um slideshow activism of like get them with a great image and then lead them on <laughs> with the facts facts on facts on facts and hopefully in inspire action and you know we don't claim to be the experts on what the action should be but we definitely want to highlight the experts that know what best to do whether it's fashion revolution or um, Asia floor wage campaign or labor behind the label. And I think just to add to that as well, I think, you know, when you're on social media, there is no end to companies that want to market you to buy things. There is no end to people who want to sell you a solidarity t-shirt. And so we, it, this isn't about competing at all. It's about elevating and it's also joining the chorus because you need as many counter voices as there are to that. And I think that's the power of collective energy and that's what social movements have done. If you look at what, you know, Me Too or Black Lives Matters have done, these are, you know, these are not new things that people have been asking for. There has been lots of different incredible organizations that have been asking and demanding very similar things. But it's about what is what can you do to add your voice to the chorus because the counter is becoming stronger and stronger and it's drowning out whatever collective energy and action we are doing on on a social justice uh, side. And I think the other thing that that Davy and I and Ruby were particularly um, a passionate about was just there are incredible feminist movements that we're sort of a part of and and have witnessed but they don't a lot of people just don't know like how those feminist movements work what they're doing every day to support uh, labor rights and labor justice and we wanted to kind of raise some of those um topics and discussions um as well as what Davy was saying, we also wanted to highlight labor organizing because that is how workers are building power. And I don't think like a lot of 
how we tell the story of campaigns like it's all about it like it also just focuses on us like we need to go out on march and we need to do this but like why are we doing that it's because we need to be in solidarity with workers who are at the absolute front line or the communities that are at the front line of these problems and it's about taking solidarity with what their demands are and 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 that's the link that we wanted to try and make that actually workers yes they're making 21 dollars a week yes they're working in really unsafe conditions where their labor rights are not recognized their human rights are not recognized they're subject to violence and exploitation but actually they are incredible incredibly powerful and they're working every single day collectively for a better fashion industry um, so we also just wanted to make sure that people heard that as well and got inspired by their collective energy and, and demands as well. I really like the, um, I think, message behind a collective voice. Um, and one thing that Davy mentioned that you mentioned in your last um, bonus episode regarding like the thugs that were hired, you know, to ensure that people... Um, the workers were working on no unions were formed that is absolutely insane and these are things that lots of consumers don't know and like Bleggy mentioned the gulf in between um consumers and brands is a big one and it's, it's very intentional but when we speak to our audience and you know we also like to educate them on what's going on behind the scenes at their favorite brands or just in general in the fashion industry we tend to be very careful i think to push people in terms of where they should buy instead um, only because we do understand that it's hard like fast fashion has been something that's been ingrained in our society for years it's something that we have bec become accustomed to as younger people the gen z the millennials it's this sort of buy now buy fast and just keep buying um, but my question is like as a capitalist society and like a booming fast fashion industry we are encouraged to buy and consume more than we need, but how can consumers informed purchases help change the fast fashion landscape or can it help change the fast fashion landscape? Yeah. And I think we've gone through our own struggle of trying to figure that out. I wish every time you asked me what I was wearing, I could tell you I was wearing something ethical. I'm not like, no, it's, it's, it's hard to get out of the system that is just all around you. And I think, I've said it before of like, it's like telling a fish that it lives in water, like it's everywhere. And um, I think for me, it became a bit more clear over this campaign of like, I might be wearing fashion, I can't escape it, but I will be wearing it to the revolution. You know, I think it's about, um, you know, we can say like, don't buy so much or buy like buy a bit better, like from better, um, from brands that have like more transparent, better business practices, smaller businesses or um, BIPOC owned businesses just to like create diversity and to, to break the monopoly as well. But I think it's exactly this next part of like, okay, after you've done your shopping, you also need to make time to organize, to educate, to agitate, like while we like to think or we know like that was the other thing this year that I think helped expose some things is like we often have this narrative that it's the garment workers in the global south, but it's definitely also the whole garment industry in many of the places that we uh, live um, in the global north as well. So, you know, how far away are you from those workers? And if 
and how could you maybe support them more and how could you know what are the policies that you could stand out stand up for or actually you know what's the intersection between a, a a garment worker demanding a living wage versus the same as like with health workers demanding better pay and conditions to even yourself like we work so much of our life we don't have time to organize a lot of it and that's the way it's also built right so i think if you it's it is it does take the work and it was another thing that in the latest episode that elizabeth klein said of like we do need to educate ourselves more on how to organize and and build movements versus like right now we're just being told how to shop better like we have work to do <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and the only thing that i'd add to davy's um kind of comment is i just I think the other thing that we've also realized through this campaign is just that the system is so, so big. Like it is like that water around you as a fish. Like it's really hard to penetrate through. And yes, we need diversity and yes, we need to change our buying habits. But I think we, you know, you get a lot of people who put messages on your social media that's just like, well, if we stop buying from these brands, it's those workers that will get, you know, impacted. And I think what we've discussed with, um, like with a lot of workers themselves is we don't need you to just keep buying, but to, to if you are going to buy question the brand as well. Like, you know, we also recognize that some people don't have the privilege of being able to like thrift or, or buy ethically because of like price barriers. And, you know, the people, it, the people who are on wages where they can't actually financially afford to be part of the ethical consumer system they're actually like more in solidarity with garment workers than those that can buy for like ethical fashion for everything they do and so they are not the they're not the people that we should target being like this is you and this is it's because of you that other people are suffering it's not like they are part of the same system that's screwing people over on both sides of the world but i think what the difference is is that we like the capitalist system is telling us the only way that we can change the system is through buying and that isn't what we can do we can ask questions we can demand better um you know we've heard from labor organizers throughout all of the podcast episodes and all of our conversations consumer agitation does work it, even if it's just i remember ananya bhattacharya who's the head of asia floor wage alliance in in Asia, she said, even if it's four or five consumers asking questions, really directed questions to a brand, it does reverberate through the chain to what workers are demanding and asking for as well. And so no action is too small, but we do need more people knowing how to be active. And as Davy said, there's a lot of work to do, um, but it's not about we have to change the system individually through buying we have to change it through action in solidarity with movements and with workers movements in particular we'll be back to this conversation in a sec but in the meantime here's our take on what's happening in the world of fashion and tech in august of last year farfetch was struggling high leverage and a shaky acquisition could only mean one thing another retail casualty however surprisingly the pandemic and the economic downturn that followed changed everything with the wealth of consumers shifting their shopping to a digital-only medium, Farfetch thrived. During the pandemic, the sites attracted 900,000 new customers, 
doubled app downloads, increased site traffic by 60% year over year, and brought revenue to $438 million in the last quarter. That's a 71% increase compared to the same time last year. Now, Nevis hints at what's next for the company, and he compares Farfetch to Netflix. Both platforms started by compiling a vast catalogue of others' properties, but are now making a name for themselves by spending big to create their own original content. Thoughts? I think we had a conversation, like, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, and we we're talking about the impact on luxury. And what we we're seeing is that there was much faster growth in fast fashion than in luxury luxury brands. So yeah. I guess this is a good news story, and it's also it kind of bucks the trend a little bit. And I I think it's a testament to how Barfetch has differentiated itself from the traditional um, designer houses, collating them all together and kind of rebranding themselves and making themselves more accessible. I'd say to millennials. Yeah. Um, I say that because even in the conversation that we had with Yorena, um, one of the things that she was saying was that a lot of these luxury brands are so digitally backwards, but we know that Farfetch is very much like at the vanguard of forward thinking when it comes to um, digital. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think the acquisition of the New Guards group, I think it was last year or so, um, was actually quite controversial in a way because some people thought, you know, he's come in at the peak of um, off-white's off growth. So it was quite interesting to see how they're going to be using that kind of, um, these kind of boutique brands to further create their own brand or their own content within um, their company. So I, I think it's good, I think it's great. I do think that there were certain companies that if there were any company that could have thrived during this period, it's a company like Farfetch for sure. Gap, the fashion giant, has pledged to only source cotton which is certified as sustainable within five years through the US Cotton Trust Protocol. This pledge isn't far-fetched. Across all three of the brands it owns, Athleta, Banana Republic and Gap, it sourced 57% of cotton sustainably in 2019. Although cotton is largely perceived as sustainable, it is a labour-intensive and resource-intensive process to produce, and the global cotton supply chain is highly exposed to risks including human rights abuses. In 2019, UK and US media began reporting allegations that minority, ethnic minority Muslim groups were being held in labour camps in China's Xinjiang region. It was determined that one-fifth of all cotton sourced globally passes through businesses in Xinjiang, making the majority of the fashion industry indirectly complicit. Yeah. I mean, I remember when you sent me an article on this, I think a couple months back now, and you were just like, what do we do? Like, <laughs> because it's like we can fight for this you know sustainable action and let's move to all cotton and then we find out that the labor process is intensive and we're like okay let's try fix that then we realize that they are now indirectly now all complicit in the conditions of or the abuse of um ethnic minority muslim groups in china so it's like and they did say every single brand in some way or shape or form plays a part in this and i'm just like I think it goes down to, although like this is obviously a very um, consumer-centric episode and we're talking about what we can do as responsible buyers, yeah. I think when it comes to things that are so ingrained in the supply chain, the only people who can make a difference are the suppliers, the manufacturers, our favourite brands. So this is where it becomes important to lobby these brands 
they need to have a reason to change their practices and we as consumers need to give them that reason whether it's by shouting at them making these things public or boycotting them i i think that nothing is going to change unless they have a reason to change yeah i i, I think i'm very conflicted when it comes to this because it's like now as consumers we have to do way more because this is not just one of few, a few brands this is not just a fast fashion brand it's all brands i mean how much lobbying and how much boycotting can be done for this to change that's my that's, that's what i'm saying that it's like even though we as consumers can do all we can to shout and say this is wrong and so on and change. you know this whole this is this whole episode is centered around consumer action it is ultimately only ever going to be down to the brands yeah um, i mean we've had interactions personally with some brands um like there was one brand in particular mango who um once in the middle of like their i think it was like a um a modern slavery scandal as well and i think i posted something on my instagram story and then they were dming me all of this great stuff giving me periodic updates about the, um what they're doing to their policies to make sure that this doesn't happen again and i said okay but make it public yeah because it for me it's pathetic quite frankly that they're saying that they're going to make all of these changes but they're not actually owning up to the errors that they've made publicly which means that there is no accountability exactly and i think that's why they dm'd instead of, of, of posting it everywhere because the first um action when you reveal the steps you're going to take to correct something means that you're guilty in the first place and i think that requires them to you know look in the mirror and actually realize okay this is a problem we've made it and we need to fix it how can a garment be cheaper than a sandwich this year the pandemic plunged the industry into its own crisis with store closures layoffs and bankruptcy filings in the west threatening the livelihood of garment workers across the globe. Low wages and poor working conditions for garment workers unfortunately existed prior to the after effects of COVID. But the economic challenges of the industry faced this year has demonstrated how much these fashion brands have gotten away with and for how long. The question now is whether the fashion business will be able to draw on the urgency of the moment and change for the better. This I'm is- not optimistic, I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I, I know I know it sounds terrible, especially as like our whole message is, you know, we can make a change and we are making changes and we're seeing all of these wonderful shifts in consumer behaviour. But it just seems like, I mean, again, the brands, it feels like the brands have no real impetus to make a proper change in terms of how they're manufacturing, who is being affected in their supply chain. And it's kind of depressing. Yeah. I, I just, I think what's important to know for those that you know are kind of new to the sustainability conversation like we are um this has been going on for years right the the livelihood of garment workers has been under threat for years only because the faster fashion becomes the more cheaply or cheaper the clothes are being made and that does um translate down into their salaries and their working conditions i mean we've heard of you know factory fires we've heard of poor working conditions we've heard of you know as close as Leicester in the United Kingdom. So when we think about how this changes, this is why I'm very like conscious to not say everyone just boycott all your favorite brands and this and that, because it's gonna take a lot more than that. And it does require these brands to move and act of their own accord. There's only so much lobbying that we can do because at the end of the day, we need clothes. We need to buy things um, and we shouldn't feel bad for having to buy certain things but we do need to be aware of where 
we are buying from and what they stand for because this year has uncovered a lot i think in the industry not just in fashion just in general it's uncovered a lot that has been bubbling on the surface um and it, it's going to require a lot more than i think lobbying like that's great we we definitely need to do all of that but these brands definitely need to change um and the urgency of it i don't know at what point it reaches like boiling point and they suddenly realize oh my god like at what stage I, I don't know what that looks like, but we can only keep pushing, I think, for that. So personally, um, the question of whether there is going to change for me lies with whether these companies are going to be sanctioned. So part of the problem is that a lot of, a lot of these brands are producing garments in countries where there are very few um, labour restrictions because ultimately those economies benefit. So for me, the only way that I see this changing is if those countries where the majority of garments are produced sanction these big brands if they don't pay their employees adequately. Problem is, of course, then they those brands can then say, OK, fine, we'll move to another country to get it done cheaper. And if you've got like 200 countries in the world to choose from, the countries that already have the majority of clothing production or material production and so on, they don't want to lose that business. So it's a vicious circle. It's a thing where these countries are always going to be exploited, whether it is their workers, whether it's the prices that are being charged and so on, because the business is vital to these economies. So somehow the fashion industry has got to develop conscience. raised a really important point about um, often the groups that are vilified are the groups that are directly impacted. And I think we touched on this in our last episode, where it was a Black Friday centered episode. And um, I think it was the Pretty Little Thing campaigns in particular, where in the morning there was outrage over the fact that that PLT was selling items for 6p. And then by afternoon, people were jumping on giveaways. And again, by design, because often you saw some, we see some of the stories of the people who are applying for giveaways. And a lot of the people are, you know, working for the NHS or they're working for local government. In short, they're not crazy rich. And they are the target market for PLT. And for me, it just comes across as extremely exploitative to, you know, once we've got to the point where consumers' consciousness is raised, you're kind of like dangling something at them to say, actually, here's what we have to offer instead, which I just, I take serious issue with. And (laughs) Davey, you raised a a really um, honest point as well about how you may not be wearing a super, you know, sustainable, super ethical clothing brand all the time. I mean, I think, I think this top is from Gap, but I've actually had it for like five years or something. So I think there is a message there where if you are going to shop, um, if you can't afford to shop these 90 pounds, super sustainable brands where they're very transparent about their supply chain, just think about what you can buy that lasts that little bit longer. What can you get the most wares out of? Because that will make a difference from buying a haul of items from PLT that you're only going to wear once or buying that one thing that you're going to wear time and time again. So we know that shopping sustainable doesn't necessarily have to mean quitting your favourite brands, but on the personal note, there are some brands I will never shop with ever again. Um, How do you think that consumers can use their passion to hold their favourite brands accountable? I think um, the same way that you are paying attention to their latest trend, you should also then keep on top of what are, how else are they in the news? Are they um, 
Are they paying their workers a fair wage? Is there a campaign against them? Um, and I think that's another thing I wanted to know made, was, I guess I, I was never sure if like consumer activism in terms of like tweeting or calling out a brand worked, but it was nice to know as Swati mentioned and as other people we talked to on the, on the podcast said that, yes, if there is enough attention on the brand, the brand will, um, they are moved to do something. They, they will crack under some of that pressure and it's really important to, um, see through this lie that we're being told that fat, that brands are not in charge of the conditions of workers in those factories. You know, there's this whole idea that it's subcontracted out. And so it's, they didn't know, they didn't know that, you know, they, the workers don't have access to the bathroom or that there's a thug that's been hired to um, bust their union. I mean, it's a lie. And even if they don't know at that moment, they can easily fix it. And that's what we learned in the last episode as well of just like, as if unions are pushing for brands to be at the negotiation table with factory owners, and it's as soon as the brand says, okay, do this, the factory owners will comply. And it's the same with governments. Um, governments in those countries, say in Cambodia or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, you know, those governments need to have better labor policies as well and uphold them. But they're also not going to do it without their own investors, the brands putting pressure as well. So as much as you love, if you really love your brand, love them enough all the way through to push them to do better. This is me being nice, but like, yeah, if you love the cap, those, those brands, um, you should expect more. I mean, it's like, tough love i guess so and also i think just to add to that and amplify what others are doing as well i think the hashtag like pay up this year and like hashtag pay your workers have been like really really like big and influential so you can go onto the pay up campaign website and you can check like has the brand that i really love actually paid its workers since covid started or are they behind on their payments so i think that's like your first thing like have they even bothered in this year of the pandemic to help the people who are actually making these clothes that you love so much um the second thing i think is also about what can you be doing as your own sort of personal voice so are you on social media can you comment can you private message can you email the brand to ask them a set of questions and there are lots of incredible templates out there that a lot of different um, campaigns so fashion revolution remake um, a number of them and we list all of the resources through on our website and on the instagram page as well for remember who made them but you can get templates where all you have to do is literally copy the template and write that to um, your your favorite brand and just ask them the questions like are you paying your workers are they getting a living wage um, and a living wage is different than minimum wage like many countries you can't you know a minimum wage is it's it's like people on the breadline and we spoke to people 
across the actual podcast series different garment workers who are just like they're in perpetual debt like they are they are working they're being paid minimum wage in their countries and it's just not enough they're working really really long hours like 10 to 12 hours a day under really obscene conditions and they still cannot afford to just live in very very basic rights of having food and safety and shelter that they have to take loans from predatory loan sharks and when you look at the problems around slavery modern day slavery in the world like a lot of it is people that are you know they're they're indebted to people like they're in bonded labor or or, uh, indebted labor like to loan sharks because they have jobs that just cannot pay them enough so you're also contributing to people's like continued exploitation and slavery in in some conditions so living wage is about actually someone who is able to live and this is not extravagant lifestyle it's not them traveling it's not them like having massive parties or whatever it's literally just so that they're not able to be in a circle of having predatory loan sharks that they have to rely on just to feed themselves and feed their family and that's like really important is is my brand playing living wage to its workers? And I think the other thing that we also need to ask, um, just because we're in a state where fashion is also an incredibly polluting industry as well, um, you know, it's second to oil in the world. It's the biggest polluter after oil um, is the fashion industry. And, you know, waste is a huge issue. And what do we do? We like mine people's like resources and time and bodies in the global south um, to make our clothes. We wear them a couple of times and then we think we're giving them to a charity shop like 80% of that leaves like Europe and ends up back in um, Africa, Asia, um, you know, Latin America, like poorer countries. And it, you know, it's a type of waste colonialism because this leaches the soil, it clogs up waterways and sewages. And so I think the other thing is asking your brands, what are you doing about the environment? Like, and not just like your car, like how much carbon emissions are you offsetting, but like, where, like, what are you actually doing to not overproduce? I think, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something like 40% of what's produced by fast fashion companies never even get sold. Like they go straight to landfill and incineration. And that's even before what we've used goes to landfill and incineration. So it's, it's, you know, like there needs to be a whole re-look at the entire system. And you need to, you know, again, there are brilliant campaigns that can tell you how to do this. But I think also tell others about it. If you've learned about this journey, speak to your other friends, speak to colleagues, post about it on your social media, let people know, um, you know, all of us, you know, none of us know the answers to anything. We're on learning journeys ourselves. And it's about being curious enough to want to, as David was saying, rather than just being curious about like, what's the best brand? Like, where can I get it at the best price? And like doing that kind of research, like also get curious about how to be better at shaping a better industry and about telling your friends like how to do that as well. So the point you just raised is very much what we have built EFITA around in terms of fashion waste. So um, our aim is to reduce the returns rate because we have, we've spoken about clothing that gets produced and never sold. We've spoken about items that are worn a couple of times, but also 40% of women's fashion is returned. 
and tons and tons of returned items end up in landfill. So what we're already seeing is eFitter or um, potential eFitter customers or the fit listeners saying to us, oh, actually, I've now thought about the fact that if I return this item, it may never get resold. So I'm not buying as much or I'm not buying two of that same item. And that in itself is progress. So we can't underestimate the power of just spreading the word about what we know. Um, I just want to very quickly um, jump on and ask you, Swati, about something that Debbie raised earlier, which was 11.11. Would it be okay to just give us a quick rundown of 11.11, um, your involvement, how it all works? So 11.11 is um, a, a fashion brand uh, that's based out of India. It was started by uh, two incredible people, Himanshu and Mia. And Mia is a really good friend of mine. And uh, they uh, wanted to start a fashion company that was really about... Um, uh, what's the word they wanted to basically celebrate really small indigenous hand spun techniques within um, the fashion industry and why that's really important to me um, and to a lot of Indians is because uh, India was like a world leader in um, in the fashion in, in you know textile production like for many many years like we had really good cotton industries and silk industries and then you know through you know a series of colonized most recently by the British like that entire industry got decimated like looms were burnt like those traditional industries were completely decimated to make room for the Manchester mills or the Lancashire mills who then became like the kind of like the global monopoly on cotton and textile manufacturing so it was literally like taking away from what was happening in India and so when you look at the flag of India um, there's a wheel in the middle and that comes from the spinning wheel uh, of Khadi which is a traditional cotton seed and a weaving technique uh, which is really sustainable, indigenous, hand loom, um, processes and techniques and so the whole freedom of Indian and I'm Indian and of Indian heritage so you know and my my family have all been like refugees from the partition of India so like for me the struggle of India for justice and liberation like is obviously really dear to me and part of that struggle was about reclaiming the textile industry back from the British and so 1111 is like it's a high fashion brand but it is it champions only traditional techniques and it's a seed to stitch model so um all of the seeds are indigenous seeds and what that means is that you know it's not like a monsanto or like a, a gm kind of seed that's come in that's been um you know genetically modified by labs in you know by big you know, global north companies and conglomerates who are just like to farmers, get rid of your national, your, you know, indigenous seed that you already use and use our seed, which will give you, you know, 40% or whatever more yield of your cotton, but they get sold this and then they have to buy like the Monsanto pesticides and they have to water more. And it basically, it ruins a lot of agricultural industries and it's well documented what they've done like across West Africa to like decimate indigenous seeds. And there's like a huge huge mo movement to like reclaim seeds. So 11.11 focuses on the indigenous seed and then um, weaving it in traditional ways in small communities that are outside of cities. So not having to draw people into cities, but, you know, investing in um, uh, small scale production. Uh, and it's all uh, um, 
natural dyes as well. So like indigo and rust and turmeric and like petals, like nothing is everything that the brand makes um, should like is about the celebration of traditional indigenous industries but also is about when you're you know like you can love that project that product and know that people have been paid fairly that it's literally come as naturally from the earth as possible and it's replicating methods that our ancestors did you know like decades or, or centuries ago but also if you these are like um things that you should pass on to your children, like their, their hand loom, their heritage products that should be passed on. But also if they do need to be returned to the earth, they have the less impact of being able to return to the earth as well. So they are all natural fibers and they will return to the earth in a way that your t-shirts, like most of our t-shirts and jumpers that we're all wearing now will not, um, so yeah, I am a huge fan of this brand. I'm a huge fan of the people behind it. Um, and so just have got really interested in sort of their model and what they're doing. And at the moment, actually, they have like a really cool uh, campaign, which is around supporting like how um, traditional hand weaving techniques, which are like, I'll send you guys a picture. It's like a really beautiful, like, um, like a box that is done to actually spin the cotton, like by hand and um, from the natural fibers uh, but it's all about um recognizing how important that is for like women's liberation in ind indigenous communities so it's just for me it's like the seed to stitch model and everything that they think about between it is just um something that I'm really passionate about and and it gives me this connectivity as like someone from the diaspora like back home that feels important as well I love that. And I think that sounds so, so beautiful. There's something really special about clothes or things that are made from love and like from the ground. It just feels different when you wear it. And like you said, the, the importance of having items that you can pass down as well for generations is something that a lot of people need to look into. Like, can I actually hand this down to my daughter or my child? Um, and if you can't, really shouldn't be buying it. Um, but that's amazing. And that sounds so, so exciting. We'll be sure to check that out. My last question to you guys is what's next for Remember Who Made Them? So that was the one question we chatted about Swatina. I was like, what are, how do we answer that question? Uh, because <laughs> it, um, I mean, again, because of what we were saying, like we're not trying to go into competition and we're more, you know, taking at this from an individual perspective of maybe becoming better consumer activists ourselves. You know, this is conceived as, as somewhat of a moment. However, it's done, we've had such an, it's been incredible, the reach that we've had and, and being able to speak to so many different people, it's hard now to let go. I mean, some of the very um, specific things is, you know, everything we were collecting on Patreon um, contributions and any donations, um, we're working on um, redistributing that out directly to uh, garment workers um, and trying to figure out the best model for how we decide that in a way that um, like might involve a few people and everybody who contributed. Um, and then any other definite actions, Swati, or I was about to move on to other dreams. 
No, I think that the only like definite thing that we need to do is get the the money that's all been raised uh, in 2020 out to workers. And we want to do that in participatory ways. So we don't like it's not the four of us making decisions about who gets the funding um, that we have raised together. But like collectively, so many people have been on this journey and contributed um, to the campaign. And that wasn't, you know, something that we thought about from the start. We, did, we weren't like, we're going to create a fundraiser. We were just a bit like, if people want to, where would we direct them? And we have a list of other like places where people can donate directly. So this wasn't again about, it was about elevating and being like, if you want to give to the garment workers in LA or in Myanmar or in other places, these are the routes to do it but some people I think wanted to you know maybe understand a little bit more and look at where is the best way for that money to go and we want to take a collective decision with everyone who has put in whether it's been a pound uh, or whether it's been like several hundred um, to make that that uh, decision together but yeah we have lots of uh, and I think the other thing just to say as well is that when we first thought about or dreamt up the idea of ever remember who made them we also were just like should this be something that we want to return back to the movement at some stage as well like do we see ourselves running something like this for a long time and the short answer was no like it's not it, like this is something that we want to build as like a collective where lots of people can come in and run with it and take it and it can be it, it can also be gifted back to the movement as well. So I think we are still coming into 2021 with that question, like what is it more that we can be doing to elevate and amplify and kind of almost like using the magic that happened in 2020 with the campaign and moving it forward. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we want to do something that is about always being additive and elevating rather than doing anything that's competing so whatever that looks like will change um i think as we go into 2021 but davy has well we all have lots of dream ideas but davy can say those in a much more articulate way no i think what i want to say well sorry as one last thing is that i think it was you know as we were trying to fight the capitalist system like we all are unlearning our own ways of how we do that of like this question of like, what next for the campaign? It has to get bigger, it has to get bigger, more, more, more. I think we were trying to be resistant to that and also know that, again, there's so many other people doing great stuff. How can we make sure that this, you know, ties into that? And I think we found that a lot with our own deadlines. Of course, like you need deadlines to get things done, but we didn't like, it wasn't such a big deal if we didn't meet our initial target and you know if anybody especially in this past year that has just been so unpredictable um you know if somebody just was having a difficult day and for whatever reason you know we weren't going to hurt each other by meeting a deadline and i think that was another thing that i really enjoyed about the campaign is just how we can change the way we work um, so that we can know what we're demanding in the fashion industry as well and what we want for workers and yeah so that's maybe that ties into dreams we'll see in 2021 i think you know we just released the bonus episode because we were like we have more to do and say so there will probably be another bonus <laughs> episode who knows maybe a, a special um day in solidarity with garment workers where we finally have panels of garment workers not anymore panels where they're talked about but not actually included 
So we will see. That sounds amazing. And I think one thing that we can draw from this is that it never stops, right? Campaigning for garment workers and for the fashion industry to do better is not a one-stop quick fix and you know after the campaign is done it's fixed it's going to be a very very long time and a long journey for us to do so I think we all just need to keep doing our part our way and it will be exciting what that looks like for Remember Who Made Them and you guys individually as well. Where can people find you individually if you don't mind sharing and with Remember Who Made Them? Sure. So, I mean, I'm happy to drop in um, some other contact details, but I'm on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. So uh, happy to be connected there and also via the Remember Who Made Them campaign um, first and foremost. The, the Remember Who Made Them handle on Twitter is at Made Them. And then you can find Remember Who Made Them on the Instagram and find us that way too. Yeah, absolutely. But we've really enjoyed being uh, on your podcast show. Thank you so much, uh, Judith and Elizabeth, for taking time on a weekend as well to catch up with us. We really appreciate it. And we love what you guys are doing as well. Yeah, if I lived in England or London, I would love to make use of that. Thank you so much for making it this far and for tuning into this episode. If you're here for the first time or you missed the last one, make sure to have a listen as we covered all things Black Friday, the psychology behind sales and FOMO. It's not one to miss. Don't forget to like us, rate us, comment, engage however you listen to your podcasts. It's really important for us so that we can get the word out there. See you soon. Bye.